0: Just get a few things set. Well, thank you for uh, sitting there to listen to what I've got to say. But uh, of course, it's hopefully not what I've got to say, but more what the Lord's got for all of us this morning. Uh, You may have seen the uh, great Australian cult classic film, The Castle. Well, tracing of course, it traces the fight of the Kerrigan family to keep that little piece of paradise on the edge of Tullamarine Airport. Uh, The quintessential line from that film, I think, is uh, the Constitution. It's Mabo. It's all of that. It's the vibe of it. And I trust that today we're going to get the vibe of what God is saying to us through Samuel. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to your word this morning and we are so thankful that you have spoken to us and have not left us in the dark of who you are, what you have done, and how you love us. And so, Lord, help us this morning as we bring our hearts under submission to your word that we will be able to arrange ourselves rightly before you. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying, but more than that, Lord, give us a desire. To do your will, and that we might uh, deal with the things that you highlight, and that we might do the things that you uh, direct us, but most of all, Lord, we pray that we would know you better and love you more because of your word here this morning amongst us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, just like in the castle, when I was growing up, uh, we had a friend, a family friend called Jenny. She wasn't microwave Jenny. She wasn't Jenny Jenny, she was just Auntie Jenny. Uh, She had attached herself to our family and was one of those people that just stuck fast for that whole time. Uh, And it was little wonder because her own family, to put it in the vernacular, was challenging. In an era when there was considerable shame attached to single parenting, uh, her father was absent during her growing up, and her mother later divorced him and remarried. And in true fairy tale fashion, she was the original family in the new family, which always becomes a problem. You know, the ugly stepsisters are a real thing. Even then, however, the Lord had his hand on her life. The family lived just down the lane from where our church used to meet. And so she and her siblings were sent off to Sunday school with their auntie. Now, Auntie Jenny was of that era that married young. I think she was only 19 when she married. And she married Bob. Bob was the archetypal ocker Aussie, a hard-drinking, blue singlet-wearing and stubby shorts type of bloke. And no sooner were they married than he took a job on the railways as a fettler on a remote outstation called Calentha Loop. It's about 100 miles in either direction from any major settlement. And there was no electricity. They had to rely on tanker trains to bring water so they could even just drink and wash and do the, the normal things we enjoy from the tap. The temperature during summer was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, for you young people who weren't brought up with that, that's over 38 degrees. And it was like that for days on end. And often where the the Fettlers were working on the actual railway lines, they would record temperatures of 50 degrees. And I remember Uncle Bob telling me once that one time the thermometer burst its top, it was so hot. But into that harsh environment was born their first child, a son. And they eventually moved back into Broken Hill where they raised two sons and later a daughter. She was sort of a bit of a surprise on the end. But it was then that God the seeds that God had planted in her really took root and her infant faith came alive. Her church family became so much more to her than just a group of people that you saw on Sunday mornings. And with a demanding and often lazy husband, life was not happy for Auntie Jenny. Her teenage daughter was raped. And just as the family was recovering from that disaster... Aunty Jenny's youngest son was killed in a workplace accident at the tender age of 16. And yet through all of this, God was still at work in her life. Even with her limited schooling, Artie Jenny was hungry to know her God, to know and love him. And so she was at every Bible study she could attend. She was at prayer meeting every Tuesday. Uh, she would uh, read every book that she possibly could. She would volunteer at the local Christian bookshop. And she realised that with an unbelieving husband and the mess of her own family, opportunities for her to serve the Lord were going to be limited. That is, in a, you know, a big public way. And so she attached herself to our family who were involved in serving in many ways. And for about 25 years, she would take all of my mother's ironing, and because that was in the days before we had sort of polyester and things that would iron out or just hang out very easily, she would take all my mother's ironing and she would do that ironing at home, placating her husband who really didn't like her going out. And uh, that would release my mother then to serve in other ways that Aunty Jenny couldn't. And even though the clothes would arrive back in our house smelling like cigarette smoke as Uncle Bob sat there smoking day in, day out, we knew that uh, beside that cigarette smoke, she loved us. But more importantly, she loved the Lord. And then the unthinkable happened. Her eldest son was killed in a road accident at just 28 years of age, leaving a young widow and two children behind. And that left Auntie Jenny with her daughter at the, as the only remaining child in the family. And one could expect that that relationship was going to be sweet, forged out of common grief and the fires of affliction you would think that would draw them together. But sadly, her daughter became increasingly bitter and more and more problematic and resentful. With all that pressure and stress and heartache, it would have been no surprise if Auntie Jenny also had become more and more bitter, just like her daughter. And yet, she clung to Jesus. At this point, it would be great to think that everything turned around and They all lived happily ever after. But Arnie Jenny's husband went off work on compo, and he never worked again, but sat in his chair in the corner of the lounge room, smoking and ordering her around all day. Their relationship with their daughter went from bad to worse and became even more embittered as they entered the early 1990s. And I stood on the footpath outside their home watching it burn, as I waited for someone to find Aunty Jenny and Uncle Bob and make sure that they were all right. Thankfully, they were out shopping. But their house was a total loss. And as news of that latest disaster began to spread, many expressed the common thought that he was a godly woman and yet terrible things kept happening to her. That didn't square with the Disney theology that so many of us believe, which says, if you're a good person, then you shouldn't have bad things happen to you. And what Auntie Jenny was experiencing was what God's people down through the ages already knew, that bad things happen to good people. First Samuel reads like a, a boy's own annual. Uh, there is eye-popping adventure. There's enough battles to satiate any swashbuckling young boy. And there's more political intrigue than a soap opera. But amidst all of that is the life and tender heart of a young man, David. David, of whom the Lord said in 1 Samuel 13, He is a man after my own heart. He rose a mighty warrior, defeating Goliath, and being anointed to succeed King Saul. And even with that anointing, he didn't grasp for power or seek backroom deals or seek to undermine King Saul. On the contrary, David was a man of integrity, showing great concern for God's people and particularly for those in his circle. And yet we see opposition. We see reversal after reversal, hardship, fighting, banishment. And difficulty on a large scale. There was pressure and stress on all sides. And chapter 29 is no different. And and thank you for for reading so much of it. It was was a big slab. But we read right at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 29 that not only was David under pressure, but so were all of God's chosen people. Israel's archenemy of this period had gathered their forces at Aphek, And don't miss the significance of that. Aphek, 90 years beforehand, the Philistines had defeated Israel at that very site and had taken the Ark of the Covenant, removing the glory from Israel. You might remember, as that happened, uh, Samuel's grandson was born and he was named Ichabod. The glory has gone. This This battle on this site, as it was shaping up 90 years later, was a great psychological tactic. When we are under pressure, Satan, the enemy of our souls, doesn't have to do a whole lot of fighting to get us to run in the wrong direction because if you're anything like me, your mind is already shaped by the events that you've suffered. Your mind runs along prepared lines and so sometimes all it takes It's for a reminder of where you've already been defeated, for Satan to start gaining a victory. A little pressure on the sore spots has us falling before the battle even begins. And before this battle in 1 Samuel begins, however, we read that the lords of the Philistines found something that didn't quite belong. I grew up as a Sesame Street generation. You know, we watched Sesame Street on television. When I was a kid, the ABC was about the only thing that we could get reliably where we lived and even though it was the test pattern for most of the day, the morning began with play school and Sesame Street. And so you might remember one of these things is not like the other. Can you tell me which is it so? Well, the Philistines knew which wasn't so. A bunch of Hebrews were the misfits. They were found at the end of the rank and this was David's band in exile and here was another pressure point in David's life. His life was under threat from his own king, King Saul, and so David had sought refuge from Achish, the Philistine lord of Gath. And whilst living in enemy territory, David employed a subterfuge to ensure the safety of he and his men. They gave the appearance of being a raiding party for Achish. Now, this is a little warning to us. Let us not take things at face value. Things aren't always as they seem to be. And Achish fell for it, hook, line and sinker. And so for David and his men, there was this constant fear of discovery, of reprisals from the Philistines. And along along with that was the constant threat of death from Saul, who was sending out raiding parties and he himself going out (laughs) trying to find him. And bear in mind at this point that David did not know how long this was going to continue. Now, we as the readers have already been let in on the little secret that uh, Saul's days are numbered. You might remember that from that that whole weird event with the the witch at Endor. Now, David did not know that this time was about to come to an end. He was still living in the midst of this pressure without the knowledge of when it was going to end. He was living with constant uncertainty. Does that sound a little bit familiar? We don't know when this, this whole pandemic thing is going to end. We don't know when the war in Ukraine's going to end. We don't know when China is going to weaken and not be so belligerent. We live in a globe with constant pressure, without our knowledge of the times and the defined events. David lived with constant uncertainty and so do we. And at the challenge of the Philistine rulers in verse 4, I dare say David was sweating bullets fearing some sort of discovery and reprisal, even as Achish went into bat for him. And here in the midst of that pressure, we see God show up. The Lord has the times appointed, and he's got David's exit in hand. It's ready. And so God provides, in a unique, funny, upside-down kind of way, this way out of no man's land, and it comes in the form of ostracism and censure. David and his men were ruled out because of their ethnicity and what was assumed to be their underlying loyalty. It was the pressure of persecution. Now, until recently, followers of Jesus in Australia didn't really face that sort of pressure. But we are starting to see that more and more in our society as it marches headlong away from any Christian heritage that we might have once enjoyed. The Andrew Thorburn incident down in Melbourne at the Essendon Football Club stands as an example of that mounting pressure that we're facing. He was forced to step down because, uh, even as the the newly appointed club president, uh, there was a statement of faith on his church's website that people took exception with. And you may also be starting to feel that pressure too in your circles, whether it's at the workplace or at school or in your family or at the surf club or at your coffee circle. Persecution and being treated as an outsider is another form of, of pressure and strain that we are constantly facing. And so David and his men were dismissed From that uh, gathering of the Philistines, and I think actually probably with some glad relief that there were no reprisals, but also that that chapter was over. And they they headed back to base at Ziklag. Now, chapter 30 and verse 1 tells us that it was a three-day march to get back home. There were no troop carriers. There were no air transports. In those days, you just marched. And as they arrived home, the unthinkable had happened. They discovered the place sacked and burned to the ground. Worse still, their wives, their families had all been kidnapped. And it must have felt like they jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. Just when they thought they'd escaped one thing, something much worse had happened. And verse 4 says that their grief was palpable. They wept until they could cry no more. They had run out of strength. And sometimes that is really the only response to what's going on. You might think, oh, but, you know, our, our sort of heritage is sort of that British stiff upper lip. I've got to be stoic. But actually there is a time to grieve. The Lord says there is a right time for everything under heaven. There is a time to be happy and dance and to be joyful. But there is also a time to grieve and be sad and to embrace And unlike our rather staid culture in Australia, those Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cultures, they really give full vent to their emotions. They, They weep like no one else. And there's no stifled sniffles into sodden handkerchiefs. There's no holding it together. And I dare say that their response is probably a much healthier response. We tend to fear the display of emotion. But as we read in the Psalms... God evidently does not fear our release of emotion. In the Psalms, we see full expression of sadness, anger, joy, loneliness, gladness, fears, anxiety. It's all there in Technicolor. And in all cases but one, those emotions then find their focus in the Lord and His goodness and in His glory. But that is not to say that uncontrolled emotion is good. In all things, we need the Holy Spirit's powerful work in us so that we can evidence the fruit of the Spirit, self-control in the middle of powerful emotions, joy amidst the grief. And that emotional power, though, that can run away with things was on display in verse 6, where we read that David's men became so embittered that they were ready to kill him. You know, sometimes the greatest pressure we face is from those close to us, those who are supposed to be on our side. And David must have felt truly alone at that point, completely isolated. And it says he was greatly distressed, not only for his own loss, but also the loss of his men and the suffering and the distress that they were they were suffering. Now, like Auntie Jenny, we might wonder why David, a man after God's own heart, would have so many bad things happen to him. To be forced to flee from your family, from your homeland, to be hounded by King Saul, living in a virtual no man's land between Israel and her enemies, fearing discovery and death at every turn. We may be forgiven for wondering. Why bad things happen to God's people. And thus far, David had shown enormous courage under fire. He hadn't wavered once and had even dealt graciously with with King Saul, his mortal enemy in one sense, uh, back there at the cave where he went to relieve himself. You know, I thought that was, you know, as a kid, I just thought that was the best story. Because, you know, when you're four years old... Anything to do with poos and wee's is just great, isn't it? You know, and there's Saul, King Saul, relieving himself. You know, and that's just as a as a kid, you go, oh yeah. And and David cuts off his rope. He treats him graciously. He doesn't deal with him really as he deserves. He gr- tr- treats him graciously even amidst all the bad things about uh, all that pressure. But that also speaks to us of God's grace and mercy. In the grand scheme of things, none of us really actually deserve anything good from the Lord's hand. We're all sinners in that we have sought to live life on our own terms, not those of our Creator who made us and knows how best we should be living. But we seek to do it ourselves. I think the saddest thing is when you get to a funeral and the last song they play is... I did it my way. I think, oh, God, please. Please don't let us do it our way. Because if we do, that leads to destruction. That kind of rebellion, doing it my way, deserves eternal separation from God. That is death. Why should God put up with any blight on his good creation? You know, if you are making something and it goes wrong... (laughs) Like, you know, a cake. I love cake. I love to eat. But, you know, a cake, when you sort of get to that point and you tip it out of the cake pan and half of it stays in the cake pan, you know, at that point, the perfectionist in me says, look, let's just make trifle with that. Let's get a nice cake and do it again. Get rid of that, you know. But not God. He seeks to rescue and redeem his creation. And so God doesn't want any blight on his creation, and yet we muck it up again and again. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, hang on a second, Mark. You don't know how good I actually am. You know, I volunteer every week at the op shop. I'm down at cricket keeping score for all those little kids. It's boring. It's so boring. But I'm there every week keeping score. And I certainly haven't murdered anyone. I'm no Hitler. Well, I'm glad you haven't murdered anyone, and probably so is the person that you felt like murdering once. But the death penalty awaits any thought or attitude or action that excludes God and stands in opposition to his rightful claim as supreme ruler of your life. And so when we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, we should actually have it around the other way. Really, it's why didn't that person die sooner? which sounds horrific to us because, of course, that would be us too, wouldn't it? But because of God's great mercy, we don't get what we deserve. I love that old Newsboys song that says, when we don't get what we deserve, that's a real good thing. It's a real good thing. When we get what we don't deserve, that's a real good thing, a real good thing. Not getting what we deserve is actually God's mercy. And it's a real good thing. Getting what we don't deserve, well, that is, you know, a life lived in relationship with, with the Lord God, with all his overflow of goodness, that's grace. And that's a real good thing. But more on that later. But the wash up of, of it is that in the depth of our rebellion against God, it means that all, good, all the good things that we can muster in our lives can never outweigh the weight of that rebellion. The fact that we have not died means that we're actually experiencing another morning of God's new mercies. We had that promise in Lamentations chapter 3 that because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. Now, if you've listened to Colin, you'll know that they are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, oh God. And off he goes, yeah. But God's compassion is great, and his mercies are new every morning. And as long as we are alive in this world, which has been marred by human sin, unfortunately, we cannot escape other sinful human beings. We cannot escape their actions. And not just the people, but also the creation. The creation has been subjected to the curse because of Adam's sin. Why do you think we have thunderstorms and hailstorms Why do you think that there are droughts and famines? Why do you think that there is rising sea levels? Why do you think that there is all sorts of doom and gloom in the ecology that we live in? It's because it's subjected to the curse, because of Adam's sin. As Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 20 to 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, we've just been hearing it, together in the pains of childbirth right up until now. Bad things happen to good people because the people of this world are sinful. And the rest of creation groans under the weight of that sin and that curse. And then there is the the hand in all of that of our redemptive God who then uses these pressures and these stresses and these troubles for something good. And that good is to make us more like Jesus. If we read a bit further on in Romans chapter 8, we get to that great passage that says that all things... Work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, that they might be transformed, I'm paraphrasing now, into the likeness of his son. And then, of course, this isn't a new principle. Isaiah talks about it in chapter 48, where we read how God refines us in affliction, in the fires of affliction, the furnace of affliction we're refined. And that is certainly something that we see in 1 Samuel for David. God said he was a man after his own heart, but he wasn't ready for all that God had for him at the start. God had some work to do and God refined David in the fires of affliction. God used all that pressure and all that trouble and all the strains to refine the man who would be Israel's greatest king, and the one through whom would come the Messiah, Jesus, the heavenly king. And at this point, we could easily launch off into a whole sermon series on why God allows suffering. And to be honest, minds much more rigorous than mine, have been working for that over the last well, three or four millennia, really. But I think one of the great things that you can do is read Johnny Erickson Tata, who has done some stellar work in that space, but actually has done that out of a place of great pain herself, as a, someone who lives with quadriplegia for over five decades, and has lived with constant pain. And so I'll leave that for others to to dig much further into. But for us, we need to realise that we face these things, first of all, because there are, we are sinful people. We live with sinful people. We live in a world that is affected by sin. And then graciously and, and so miraculously, God then uses those terrible things for good. But just as we are saved by grace, we, and, that, and just as we cannot earn our salvation, neither can by being good we twist God's arm to bless us with rude health, wonderful families and a good life. Jesus said that he came so that we might have life and have it to the full. But he said the way to that life is in death. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Taking up the cross is not just a symbol. It's not like you see at Easter where someone grabs a cross and starts hobbling down the street, taking up your cross, Jesus is saying, you've got to die. Not literally in the sense that you've got to go out and stab yourself in the heart, but you have got to put to death the flesh, that thing in you that will stand up in rebellion against God. And if someone tries to tell you that the life of the Christians should not include suffering, they are trying to sell you something that is not the gospel. We follow a saviour who suffered. We follow somebody who said, if you are serious about following me, then you too will suffer. And so at the end of verse 6 of chapter, one, of chapter 30 in 1 Samuel, we find David right on the edge. His family has been kidnapped, along with the families of his men. All their belongings are gone. Ziklag has been burned to the ground. His men, naturally, are ready to kill him. Now, at this point, rather than run away from his struggles and try and find some me time in the midst of all that pressure or throwing a tantrum or just uh, really tucking the towel in and saying, no, I'm not going to do that anymore, we discover just why the Lord God said that David was a man after his own heart. He doesn't shrink back from his men or from his God. David had the courage to keep at the task, that courage under fire. And how did he do that? Well, at the end of verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He didn't turn inward on himself he didn't turn outward lashing out at those herdi- at, at, at his hurting horde around him he turned upward and he relied on the lord his god let me ask you where do you turn when things get really tough when you're under pressure someone once said that you know we are like tubes of toothpaste when the pressure is applied and we are squeezed what's truly inside comes out Are you one of those who lashes out in anger and frustration at those around you? Or are you someone who who turns in on yourself and starts overthinking everything and thinking through everything and worrying, 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 worrying and getting more and more anxious about things? Or are you taking a leaf out of David's book and turning to the Lord our God? God is fully contactable and he is waiting for you to call on him. He is not like us screening our calls every time the phone rings, saying, oh, yes, that's that call centre in India again. Now he's saying, oh, it's my precious child. Here we are. He's not like us. He wants us to come to him in prayer. And that's why Paul instructs us to pray about everything, not just about the car park that you might want down at Coles, not just about the big things in our family, like that child who has walked away from his faith and treats you like your dirt. Not just about the things that you see are important, but everything. He wants to be involved in our day. And in verses 7 and 8, David seeks the Lord's guidance by the Urim and Thummim contained in the priestly ephod. Now, Controlling the fall of the lot, which is you know they would toss these urims and thummims, the urim and thummim, around to try and work out what God wanted, and that was the way that God chose to communicate through His priests in the old original covenant. But today, God has given us His Holy Spirit, and the Spirit speaks to us as we pray and as we read the Scriptures as we meet together with other believers, getting a sense of what God is doing amongst us in his church. And then, lastly, by the circumstances that the Lord engineers around us. Now, unfortunately, too often, we are fatalistic. We're like little Muslims and solely rely on the circumstances around us, looking for a door to be open or a door to be closed, trying to channel us where we think we should go. But we do so at our peril because Satan, our adversary, can also control circumstances. We really need the combination of prayer, the word, the church, and circumstances to adequately discern how God is directing by his spirit. Now, the Lord God directed David to pursue the attackers in verse 9. And as James wrote so many years later, we not only need to hear from God, but we also need to actually do what God says. So many of us get stuck in the prayer meeting and don't actually go out and do And this is what David and his men did. The Lord directed, they went. They set out, an exhausted and grief-weary band. They had already marched for three days, coming upon the grisly scene at Ziklag, only then to march for another 32 kilometres. That's like marching from here to Norah Head. Can you imagine it? And it's little wonder that some 200, when they got that 32 kilometres to the wadi at Basor, they were utterly exhausted. And the rest then marched on. Again, David displayed the kind of gracious attitude that reflects God's gracious dealing with us. In verses 11 to 15, a dying Egyptian was found and revived. And maybe because of the kindness shown to him by the Israelites, that the Egyptian servant was happy to give intelligence to what had happened uh, and where the Amalekites had gone. And the Egyptian led the way, and sure enough, the Amalekites had spread out in party mode. Still, without rest, relying only on the strength that the Lord had provided, David and his band attacked and struck them down. It took 24 hours of non-stop fighting. They fought all night and all the next day till sundown, before they achieved a hard-won rescue. There was a great deliverance. You know, that echoes to me of the great deliverance that Jesus has won on our behalf. You know, we have lost everything in the sense we have been taken captive by sin and death. And yet Jesus died on the cross so that we could be rescued, so that we could be delivered from that. And so David really is is echoing what the Messiah would later do in a much bigger way. And then, of course, is recorded for us the the joyous reunion of the people with their families, flocks, herds and possessions. Miraculously, nothing was missing. It's incredible. But when they got back to the camp at Basor, human selfishness raises its ugly head. After the merciful and gracious way uh, that the foreigner had been treated amongst them, this See, almost seems sort of upside down, doesn't it? The Egyptian, the outsider had been treated well, but not so their fellow Israelites. But David, however, challenges this and ensures that grace is restored and that everyone gets a share in the spoils of battle. Let me ask you, what's your attitude to your brothers in Christ? Are you quick to condemn them? Are you harsh with them? Are you stingy? Well like David we need to be generous with what God gives us. Paul reminds us of the importance of treating each other well in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. He says so then as we have opportunity not just when it takes you by fancy but as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. But you might be sitting there thinking oh but Mark you don't know what that Rob Jenner is like. You don't know how offensive he is and what he's done to me. He still, he just does not deserve anything good from me. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, demonstrating just how much our God loves us. The first thing we need to give each other as those in God's family, is forgiveness. And yet so often that's the last thing that we give. We don't live the gospel. We don't live what Jesus has done for us amongst ourselves. And it's no wonder people outside the church are going, who'd want to be part of that? We need to be open-handed and forgiving just like Jesus was with us. We didn't deserve it. We had offended the God of the universe, the creator, the one who knew exactly how we should live. And yet, God so very graciously gives us everything in his son. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died to save us. Let me ask you, have you come to know the forgiveness that he offers us through Jesus Christ? If so, you need to live that. But if not, let me remind you that following your own path, doing it my way, is not going to lead anywhere good. Yes, you'll enjoy your life while you're here, but you won't have full enjoyment. Yes, you might think, oh, I've got the party waiting for me with all my mates down in hell. There'll be nothing good. The only place where good gets in is heaven, and you're not good enough. You have to rely on what Jesus has done. He gives you his goodness. And let me ask you, please, if you haven't already given your life to Jesus, don't delay. I worked as a funeral director for some time. I know that the days are numbered. There will be an end point, And it won't be when you think it's going to be. It may be today. So don't delay. Today's the day. If you haven't sorted things out with God, do so today. Talk to me afterwards if you need to. Talk to Better still, talk to someone you know who follows Jesus and can help you then to keep following Jesus too. And we follow Jesus, the risen Lord. Thankfully, God did not leave him dead. Once the price was paid for our sinful rebellion, he raised Jesus back to life, proving with power that he was the Son of God. And now this risen Christ shares his inheritance with all of us in the same way that... David shared the spoils of battle with the whole band of followers. But as we look at the end of our passage, we see that David's graciousness extends much further than just his own people who fought the battle and, as Dan said, deserved. It extended to those who minded the baggage. And further than that, it extends to those in southern Israel. David's courage under fire becomes grace under fire. He gives gifts. And I reckon that when it came time for David to be proclaimed king amongst them, those people who had received such goodness from him, had received protection and received those that bounty from the battle, they would have been one of his greatest supporters as king, one of his greatest advocates. And just like we who have Uh, receive so much grace from the lover of our souls we need to advocate for the reign of jesus christ the king firstly in the hearts of those around us but then also more broadly in the culture of our workplaces of our schools of our government institutions of our social and sporting clubs we pray in the lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, God's will isn't just for heaven, it's for here. He is in the business of redeeming and rescuing what we live with now. And through God's grace, we who have come to God the Father through Jesus the Son are part of that kingdom and have been charged with its advancement here on earth. But we will one day soon stand with all the redeemed. And we will shout for joy at the return of Jesus Christ, the King, when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we'll be doing that because we're the ones who have experienced His grace, His goodness. We have received so much from Him. And as we stand there on that day, With the multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we will be saying, How great is our God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We see that in the life of David. We thank you that as we face trials and pressures and stresses and strains, that you are there with us and that we have your sweet promises that even those bad things you will be redeeming and rescuing us from and turning those bad things even into gold in our lives, making us more and more like your precious son. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not be those who lack courage in the face of adversity, but that we would be strengthened by you, our Lord, and that we would be gracious even under that stress and strain that we would still seek to give from the bounty that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for the example of men like David, for women like Auntie Jenny, who have shown us what it looks like to not only have courage under fire, but grace. And we thank you for all of this in and through your son's precious name. Amen.